welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Matt, for getting together with me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, well, just to kind of start off by saying a few things about yourself from our previous conversation, you were really into swimming when you were young, and um, I think you said you were on the national team for a while? I was, yeah. That's um, something not many people know about me, because I just don't reveal it to many people. Yeah. But yeah, I was a competitive swimmer growing up, and uh, made the Olympic trials when I was 17, went to the Olympic trials at 18, went to the semifinals, then competed at, in college, made the national team when I was 20, went to the world championships when I was at the end of that year, right before I was 21, uh, competed there, won a gold medal. I was on a relay with Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte and some of the, the big name guys. I was wow. kind of the last leg of the relay. Mm -hmm. So that's the name that most people forgot about, but it was pretty <laughs> fun to be there. Yeah. And then uh, I finished my career in 2008 at those Olympic trials. I was hoping to make the Olympic team and made it to the semifinals in my three best events uh, three times in a row and didn't get into the finals. And so I called it a career. I competed in college as well in the NCAA and uh, finished second my senior year in the, in the NCAA championships. I was at the University of Texas. Hmm. So, uh, Was that all just a pretty exciting time for you? Yeah, it, it was um, stressful 90% of the time and fun 10% of the time. Yeah. That's how I would describe it because the workout routine's really intense. You wake up at 5 a.m. and you do a two-hour swim from 5 to 7. And then when you're in college, you do classes throughout the middle of the day. And then you come back and you do another training session from 3 to 6. And uh, you go home and you don't really want to do homework, but you have to. So... Um, and your mind's always on competing at an elite level, and so everything has to be perfect because when you get to that level, the difference between first place and eighth place in a big meet might be the length of your finger. So mm -hmm. you're thinking about every angle, every dive, every flip turn. Um, so you, it can be stressful, but there's a payoff at the end of it. And what's the payoff? I guess the payoff for me, and it's different for everybody. Some people just love winning. Mm -hmm. um, I just liked bettering myself. I mean, it was an individual sport, unlike team sports like basketball and football, where mm -hmm. um, there's this sense of camaraderie maybe that you don't have in swimming. Um, swimming, it's all personal. It's very psychological. You're in your head all day, mm -hmm. um, but you're trying to bring out the best of yourself, and that aspect of it appealed to me. Mm -hmm. trying to become a better athlete and I think it requires a high amount of discipline and by being more disciplined you could argue that you become a better person in some respects too mm -hmm. so um, there was a there was a payoff in bringing the absolute best out of yourself that you possibly could and mm -hmm. what you were doing so and you were into that at that time as young person bringing out the very best of yourself I, I was um, at the time, I don't think I appreciated it as much as I do now, because okay. I think like anything else, when you're just wrapped up in the moment, you're not thinking about all the benefits of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So for me, I was just 
chasing Michael Phelps or chasing Ryan Lochte and being stressed that I wasn't better than them. So what put you on the, this competitive path that went so far? Like, I can imagine there could be a lot of people who would have the natural aptitude, but they just it wouldn't go anywhere. Was it your parents who were really involved with this with you, or was someone else involved with you, directing you and helping you to go in that direction? Yeah, it very much was um, the help of a lot of people. Definitely parents, siblings, friends, loved ones, teachers, coaches. So it's it's tough to take credit for something like that because anybody who gets to a certain level has a lot of help to get there. Mm-hmm. And I'm no different, and I consider myself pretty privileged in a sense because, um, especially in a sport like swimming, it's not a cheap sport by any means. Somebody has to take you to swim meets. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to buy your apparel swimsuits actually wear out pretty fast so you're constantly having to upgrade swimsuits and mm-hmm. especially in 2008 the swimsuits got really technical and oh, yeah. they got really expensive they had the whole body suits that went from shoulder to at least kneecap mm-hmm. and uh sometimes those were upwards of 500 dollars. and wow. if you don't have a job then you're not paying for it so somebody has to mm-hmm. and uh and th- in that sense i'm very lucky because when i say that i w- was a world champion well, I was a world champion amongst the people who could do it. I mean, mm-hmm. who knows how many people didn't get the opportunity who could have been great swimmers too. Mm-hmm. And besides um, that part of your life, you're also into minimalism. And then um, you um, you, um, how you associate with the, the Christian faith or you relate to that, I guess is how you would say it, uh, identify with it. And then you also spent some time in China teaching English. Um, so um, I guess I was going to start off just asking you, you know, what's the most exciting thing going on in your life right now? Yeah, that's a good question. When you brought all that up, I was thinking to myself, I guess one could argue it's kind of a crazy life. <laughs> Been all over the place. But, uh, it's strange because I've only had one job and one career this my entire adult life. So sometimes I like to think, oh, it's been pretty typical. But then I look back on some of the traveling and the crazy hobbies, and I'm like, oh, I guess it's a little atypical. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I did live in China for two years after college, mm-hmm. taught English there. Um, and I think that shaped a lot of my current views. Um, because uh, these days, I wouldn't say that I, I try to get myself into anything too crazy. I mean, I don't plan on living in Russia or Serbia anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've really been exploring minimalism, kind of as you hinted at, mm-hmm. uh, more as a personal thing. Because I think everybody has their own journey and their own arc. And at various points of their lives, they realize what they do well and what they don't do well. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, I was always a maximalist, which is what I would call the opposite of minimalist mm-hmm. in the sense, and it might've come from swimming. Maybe that's one of the, the dark consequences of being a good swimmer is that you try to maximize your potential in something. And, um, it has, it has, uh, I don't know how to describe it other than it has consequences in other areas of your life. So hmm. maybe you try to consume more, you try to get more clothes. You try to make sure your clothes are better than the next guy's. 
Um, you try to make sure your car is better than the next guy's. And before you know it, you have this clutter around you and you don't know how it got there. Mm-hmm. And it can happen really fast. And mm-hmm. um, so that's what drew me to minimalism was trying to reverse course on some of my life habits that I've had over the last 10 or so years. Hmm. So it's kind of a, a self-consciousness that expresses itself by things, I guess, and wanting to, um, and you're kind of grading yourself based on how you compare to others based on material things. Is that kind of what it is? Yeah, v- very much. It's um, maybe the dark side of competitiveness. Mm-hmm. It's You don't really know how to shut it off, and maybe when I finished swimming, I thought that I did shut it off, but it kind of lingered in other areas of life. Mm-hmm. So um, not everybody probably has the same problem, so not everybody needs to be a minimalist. Yeah, That's it. Some people are just naturally minimalists. Right. But, uh, for me, it, it was almost like the AA of clothes shopping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since that uh, it was a way to, to do a harsh detox on some, some patterns of behavior. <laughs> yeah. And for other people, I imagine, um, you know, it, it could be like um, just being super nice, a pleaser or something like that. I mean, it could... That desire to um, want to make the grade, so to speak, you know, in society could be expressed in different ways than material things. It could, I don't know, probably any number of different ways, huh? Yeah, I, I think it can manifest in a million ways. It's, um, I mean, even minimalism in general, it's, it's kind of a vague concept mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, it's tough to trace a history on minimalism or what exactly it means. I mean, it probably means something different for each person. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's something very internal. I mean, it could be very shallow in the sense that somebody just wants to declutter their wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's if you look at it from a societal level, there's maybe this pattern of behavior you catch yourself in where you're trying to consume, 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 and you realize that you're consuming to maybe fill a void. Mm-hmm. And you get a little dopamine rush when you get the next best, best thing or the next iPhone or the next iPad or the, the better car. Mm-hmm. And you feel like something missing inside of you has just been filled. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you feel complete for a little while. And then you realize that, lo and behold, you're still one purchase away from finally feeling complete. And mm-hmm. so three hmm. days later, you're looking for another great thing to acquire. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You're always trying to fill in some sort of lack in your life. Um, so was that just obvious to you? Uh, like, um, or was that real hard to see in yourself and was difficult to, for you to discover that? Or was, it, you know, or was it pretty easy just to say, hey, this is what's going on in me? It, I found it difficult. Okay. And it was a gradual discovery that happened over 10 years. Um, I think mentally I, I was appealed to the idea of living a simpler life maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I thought I was doing it. And it really wasn't until one day I walked into my closet and I saw that there was maybe 80% of it that I hadn't worn in the last six months. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is all this stuff that I just keep acquiring? Mm-hmm. And when I really traced my, uh, my mental patterns behind each purchase, I realize 
each purchase was meant to either impress somebody else or give myself some sort of ledge mm-hmm. somewhere in life. Hmm. Then I was, th- it was really that epiphany that made me realize I was buying things for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. and it was just going to continue forever unless I somehow stopped it. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the lack? Like if um, material things don't uh, fill that lack and give satisfaction, what does? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think um, if there's a criticism of minimalism, it's... Sorry. (laughs) No problem. Yeah, if there's a criticism of minimalism, it's that some people tend to ask what's next. So you, you empty out your wardrobe and then you just look inside this empty space and you're like, okay, where's my, where's my grand epiphany? What's, mm-hmm. what's the conclusion of it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do a daily journal and mm-hmm. I've been trying to kind of map out what would be next. And so these are my own steps, mm-hmm. not necessarily anybody else's. But for me, the first step in minimalism would be decluttering or emptying space. Mm-hmm. Sense that uh, you're you're getting rid of your excess, and then the next step for me would be um, being comfortable in silence, mm-hmm. because you're essentially trying to fill your life with noise to numb out something else, some other issue, whether it's um, maybe stress from work or insecurities, mm-hmm. um, and you're trying to mask it through the wrong things. So the next step for me would be being comfortable in that silence. Um, at some point, the real core of it is maybe a fear of of the unknown. Because with every purchase, you're trying to make sure that you have every angle covered for the next day. Right? You're looking for the perfect jacket that can keep you warm or keep you dry in rain. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, you have 20 variations of the same jacket. Mm-hmm. And so you think, oh, I have every single angle covered now. But in reality, you can never really plan for every circumstance in life that's going to hit you. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's the final step, I don't know, is kind of embracing the lack, embracing the idea that you don't have everything covered, and you never will. And you're always going to be one purchase away, and your car is never going to be the best car. Mm-hmm. But it's still going to get you from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. So... Like being comfortable in silence or like without having it, that's kind of, but, um, so, um, and then it, and then it, it, well, have you, are you comfortable in silence now? I'm getting there. Okay. I would consider myself the least comfortable person in silence 10 years ago. Okay. Because my life was constantly noisy. I was traveling with a national team. Um, It was high dopamine rushes, getting on a block, racing someone from another country. Yeah. Um, And then going from that to traveling in China for a few years. And then coming back here um, and looking for other competitive things to do. So I, I felt like I was very uncomfortable with silence for a long time. And I feel like I'm finally getting to that point where I'm realizing that there's a lot of beauty in silence. So maybe it's just a natural part of aging. I don't know. Because hmm. I'm 35 now. And I think when you're 35, you're just going to appreciate different things than you are at 22. Mm-hmm. So maybe at 22, you're looking to climb, 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 and mm-hmm. 
get to a certain status and show people a certain image of yourself. Mm-hmm. And then when you're 35, you just naturally have more of an attitude where you're glad to just go to the park and look at trees on a nice day. <laughs> hmm. So um, as far as you know, meeting that lack, um, it's not so much like there needs to be something to, to complete that, but it's more of you, d- you don't need anything to complete it. Um, you just take everything away, and, and that's going to be fine. Um, is it kind of like what you've come to or what your thoughts are about it? Yeah, very, very much so. I think okay. with, with, with each acquisition you make, there's some sort of justification in your mind of making it. You think, well, I, I need this thing. And your mind creates a million reasons why you need it. Mm-hmm. And then usually you buy it, and there's a certain amount of excitement from buying it. Mm-hmm. And then a few weeks later, <laughs> you either forget about it or you wonder why the hell you had to pay 100 bucks for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think in the process of minimalism, what happens is you just essentially put yourself on a buying freeze. Mm-hmm. The same way an alcoholic will put himself on, a, on an alcoholic consumption freeze. Mm-hmm. And when you stop buying um, for, for X amount of time, you realize that the things that you already had were plenty enough. And if anything, mm-hmm. you already had too much. Mm-hmm. And that was my realization was I decluttered my wardrobe down to very few articles of clothing, um, a very small fraction of what most people would think would be necessary and I still feel like I have more than enough. Mm-hmm. And so that was the grand epiphany for me, was that I, I kept acquiring things thinking, well, now I have something that I need for X, Y, and Z situations that may or may not happen a year from now. Mm-hmm. And by not getting them, I realized that those situations I created in my mind would never happen. Mm-hmm. Or if they do happen, you can just find a much easier way of, of maneuvering around it. Right. So when it just kind of comes down to it, um, from your perspective, how would, and what's life all about or how would you, you know, kind of put it, do you think? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And I guess that's what everybody's seeking, right? And the meaning of life. And Mm -hmm. um, I think it's going to be different for everybody. But for me, uh, if I'm going back to minimalism and the original minimalist, I mean, one could argue Jesus is the original minimalist. Um, or I guess you could go even further back to like the Stoics and the Greek philosophers and Marcus Aurelius, if you really want to hmm. dive into it. Mm-hmm. But if you go and you, if you go back to their ideals, usually it was try to strive to make yourself the best person you can be. And by making yourself better, you make the world around you better. So, Hmm. Okay. So, uh, that might be the core of the meaning of life. I don't know. Okay. Kind of like um, we're in this creative system and just being our part of it in a just a good functional way that blesses the whole, I guess. Something like that, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, I like to read Dostoyevsky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the overarching theme in all of his books hmm. is that by bettering yourself and by making small actions of kindness to the people around you 
it creates ripple effects in the universe that are further reaching than you could ever even imagine. Wow. And, and it kind of, it heals the world essentially in ways that you never would have thought. Hmm. Um, and the smallest gesture can have a profound ripple effect that you just never would have imagined. So I think that's powerful. And then conversely, um, the most narcissistic gesture can have a really negative effect on the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of neat and scary to think about <laughs> just how significant we are or potentially significant we can be, you know, to other people and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I think that's what a lot of people get out of faith is um, they get that sense of community and they get that sense of an ideal, right? And they see an ideal and whether or not they can actually match that ideal. Um, some might argue it's an impossible ideal to actually match for yourself, but the idea that you're constantly reaching for it mm-hmm. and getting yourself closer to it mm-hmm. is making yourself better and it's making those around you better too. Mm-hmm. Because, um, I, I do think that actions and emotions are very contagious. We, we just see it in every aspect of life. We see it in family, friends. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, concerning faith, like you were talking about how early in your life um, you had one parent who was a Catholic and one parent who's Presbyterian, so you kind of went back and forth. So, and um, you still, um, it sounds like you're not a churchgoer now, but you still identify with, you know, the Christian faith basically. So how, um, was, was it always important to you or did you have like a conversion experience or, um, or just, um, I guess, how did you get started in that in a way, in a meaningful way? Yeah, I guess you could say I did have a conversion experience. Um, cause I did grow up going to two churches mm-hmm. and, I actually loved them both just hmm. for different reasons. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of a lot of kids that I knew who went to Catholic church <laughs> became very jaded by the guilt from it hmm. when yeah. they got older. I didn't really mind. I I think just because I found it all so interesting and hmm. I was really into horror movies actually and The Exorcist mm-hmm. was one of my favorite films okay. and yeah. it has a lot of Catholic undertones. Obviously it's about a Catholic priest who performs an exorcism. Yeah. So uh hmm. so um I I definitely identified with both churches in certain respects, and I might have had a natural trajectory that a lot of young men have, where they go to college and they question everything, and mm-hmm. and they wonder, well, there's all these scientific reasons why this and this and this might not be true, mm-hmm. and so I did go through that period of time where I had kind of the same questionings, and I kind of veered in and out. Um, and what I think what drew me back, what converted me, was my experience in China. Hmm. And I, I might have told you that once before. Yeah. But uh, China's a very secular place. Mm-hmm. And I think I just saw the consequences of a society without faith. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, I kind of revisited the Bible. And I saw it in a different light because I wasn't trying to be a textualist who is looking at every line literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to debunk it, 
suddenly I was looking at the meanings behind the lines. So mm-hmm. instead of looking at Noah's Ark and thinking to myself, well, you can't fit every species of animal on a boat. That's impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, I was uh, looking at it and thinking, well, what, what's this telling us about the world and society? Mm-hmm. Because it's saying something really profound, and the people who wrote it were very smart people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that kind of brought it back into my life. Mm-hmm. So... Um did you encounter any Christians in China? Not many. It's okay. China is a difficult place to practice any religion because yeah. uh, the the Communist Party of China is essentially atheist. Mm-hmm. They are atheist, mm-hmm. and their their legal stance on religion is that anybody can practice it. But in actuality, it's not quite so easy. Hmm. Uh, so most of the Christians I knew there were either in hiding. Mm-hmm. Um, scared to openly admit they were Christian or um, kind of on the fence about whether it was worthwhile or they were thinking about getting out of China. And mm-hmm. not just Christianity either, every religion there. Um, they have a huge issue regarding Islam in, in the West, northwestern region of China. Oh, really? Wow. But uh, hmm. a, lot, a lot of, I mean, they essentially have correctional facilities right now. Drive, and then turn right to stay on Main Drive. Sorry. Oh, no problem. Yeah, they have um, pretty much the closest thing to a modern-day concentration camp, and they're detaining people and trying to basically cleanse them of their faith or their spirituality, Hmm. show them the the correct ways of living, the Chinese government, more Mm secular-based viewpoints. Um, But, yeah, so they're separating families... Um, I don't know what is true and what isn't, but you hear all kinds of horror stories about what exactly is going on in those correctional facilities. Hmm. So it's it's not a it's not a faith friendly country by any means. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting how um, it's like it almost seems sometimes like the more you try to stomp out faith in God, the more <clears throat> you can't that it just you know rises up uh, underneath you know underground and so forth you know. Yeah, very, very much. It's um, and it's not unlike anything in human nature. If if your parents just keep telling you over and over, you can't drink, you can't drink. I mm-hmm. forbid you from having a beer. Right. Then, and you're a 15 year old. Suddenly, you're going to be like, hmm, I wonder what this Budweiser tastes like. Mm-hmm. Maybe when they're not looking, I'll just have a sip to show that I, I, I have some sort of free will. Mm-hmm. So it's. Not unlike that, but um, and it, it does kind of show the power of faith too, because I did know a, a lot of Chinese people over there who um, outwardly would say they were secular, mm-hmm. um, but privately would tell you that they're still practicing. So mm-hmm. um, they would they would tell you about how they would hide their crucifixes in their rooms, or if they were Buddhist, they would hide their Buddhist statues in their rooms, then they would practice privately and pray privately. Mm-hmm. So there was this underground movement. Hmm. Yeah. So what gives you, um, you know, you were talking about um, the meaning behind the words in um, the Bible and um, that the writers, you know, there were smart people and there was something to all of this. But what gives you a confidence that there is, that it's more than just really deep literature, that there is um, like a a reality beyond just kind of our natural, what we're experiencing with our senses and so forth. Um, is there anything in particular 
that gives you um, that you think you know that make that you would say well that's the reason for my confidence that you know an existence of God and and maybe even just the the, the basics of the Christian faith or something like that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Because um, I think what draws me to Dostoevsky mm-hmm. is he really illustrates better than any other writer the dangers of the intellect, um, which is, I think, especially relevant today because we never really think of intellectualism as potentially dangerous. It's more of just a virtue these days. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the reason why he points that out is because being smarter and acquiring more knowledge is not necessarily synonymous with being morally good. Mm-hmm. And an intellectual mind by nature is going to be kind of self-serving. So we can trick ourselves into thinking all kinds of things to commit really bad acts. Right? We can, uh, we can tell ourselves, well, for example, in crime and punishment, the main character commits an act of murder. Mm-hmm. And his reasoning is, well, Napoleon commits all kinds of acts of murder and he does it without any guilt or shame. And he gets away with it because he doesn't have any guilt or shame. So he removes himself from that burden of guilt, and he commits these crimes, and all he does is gain power. Mm-hmm. So, and there's actually what's scary is there is an intellectual way to justify that. I mean, he's not completely wrong, mm-hmm. but obviously it can go too far. And the writer's argument is when you go too far, you you basically corrupt yourself, you, mm. and whatever was good inside you essentially dies, and that's what happens. He commits this act of murder, and everything that was good inside of him dies, and he's never the same again. Hmm. And he slowly crumbles. And uh, and so it, I think regarding faith, to tie it back to your question, you can you can easily intellectually justify a lot of reasons to not be faithful, mm-hmm. right? There's there's a scientific explanation to debunk just about anything these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, if, if we go back to some other books, like maybe The Life of Pi, right? Mm-hmm. The Life of Pi is one of my favorite books, too. And it kind of talks about the essence of faith, right? And the character I'm, at the I'm thinking end. of the movie. Um, oh, is yeah. it the same thing or no? Yeah, very much so. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but okay. Yeah, so at the end, you know, he posits two situations. One is sort of the faithless situation, which is this very barbaric, nihilistic situation. And the other one is a little more fantastical um, and harder to believe, but feels a lot better. And he says, which one do you choose to believe hmm. um, to these people who are listening to his story? Mm-hmm. And, I th- and then he says, so is the essence of God, and that's kind of how it ends. Hmm. So, um, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Um, so it sounds like, one thing is, that kind of grounds you in this is just that the moral sense that we have, that we just can't get away from, that there's just this moral reality to things. Yeah, there really is. And I think the universe is just so mysterious. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if we set out in our lives to prove everything wrong, we're not going to get any further. Mm-hmm. We're not going to further ourselves, and we're not going to find any great discoveries. I mean, because every answer that we find leads to 20 more questions. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's similar with faith. It's if, if we just go out to 
debunk the existence of God, well, we're never going to be able to, mm-hmm. because it's an impossible thing to debunk. Hmm. Yeah. So it's right. and um, and there there are so many mysterious qualities to the universe, mm-hmm. and there are so many truths behind simple actions and simple gestures making the world better. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's just so profound that I would posit, why not have faith? Mm-hmm. And then the the other thing that kind of grounds you in this is like you're kind of related to what you're talking about, the life of Pi. Like, uh, it's, if I'm understanding it right, it sounds like, well, there's this this view of the world or this view of the world, and it's not so much I can prove either one, but this just seems much more satisfying. So you got to put your chips on something. Let's just go that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you really do. I mean, at yeah. some point, everybody puts their chips on something, whether mm-hmm. it's faith or science. Yeah. Um, so it's, and it doesn't have to be like a, you have to go one way or the other by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's, it's just sort of the acceptance of the unknown, the acceptance that God is very mysterious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the Bible illustrates it very well. I mean, the Old Testament's filled with really harsh realities, mm-hmm. and the world's filled with really harsh realities, and mm-hmm. there's just a lot of things that one can question with any rational mind. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why, would a, why would God let a genocide happen? Mm-hmm. And, you know, but behind every one of those questions, there are some realities in which you can, like, look inward at yourself. Mm-hmm. Why would God let a genocide happen? Well a lot of people became very corrupt Mm -hmm. and because they let it happen. Hmm. Um, Well, um, see, I guess um, one thing I was going to, you know, that just came up while you were talking um, about you know, minimalism and like satisfying that something in us. I mean, um, what are your thoughts about relationships? Um, I guess that's one thing I kind of think of as like we're kind of made for relationships so that, um, I don't know, I, I think um, perhaps there can be people in certain situations who can be very... Um, by themselves, and that's just kind of their path in life, and maybe their relationship is with God and with nature and so forth. But just in general, it seems like um, if we have that opportunity for relationships and we're kind of spurning that, it, it seems like that could be something that leads, um, you know, later in life toward something just not as satisfying to me, you know, and just kind of imagining it and so forth. Have, um, do you have any, uh, you know, thoughts about um, that as far as it goes to, to life and um, satisfaction in life and so forth? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, um, especially to, in this day and age, it's, I, I mean, it's kind of a cliche at this point because everybody says, well, we're living in polarizing times. But we, are, we kind of are living in polarizing times. I mean, every cliche is made a cliche because it's kind of true. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and whenever things are very polarized, people tend to pick sides. 
mm-hmm. right? And we tend to form like these these little collections of friendships with people who think and act the same way that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that can be kind of dangerous, mm-hmm. just because there there is some value. There's a lot of value in community, yeah. but there's also a lot of danger in um, forming tribes. Yeah. So I, I think regarding friendship, um, one great thing about faith is that it does, it is a way to form a sense of community and bond because um, it, it teaches people the value of giving and the value of friendship and family and love. Yeah. Um, and those are all really important ideals. Mm-hmm. And so I think when times are polarizing, the challenge to me is carry out those ideals to people who you wouldn't normally be comfortable carrying them out to. Yeah. Because that's what really makes the world a better place. I mean, anybody can can agree with somebody who already agrees with them. Right. <laughs> anybody can be friends with someone who, who's going to be in agreement with everything they say. That It becomes more challenging when you try to reach out a hand towards somebody who might not agree with you or have the same ideals. Right. Um, and it can even yeah. go as far as like the whole atheism faith debate. Mm-hmm. Right. It's um, it's very easily it's a very easy trap to fall into to to look at somebody who doesn't have the same viewpoints and kind of cast them aside because of it, or try to prove that their viewpoints are wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. The the real challenge would be to be humble about it and be willing to laugh at yourself and reach out and give them a hug and and learn more about why they feel the way they feel. Mm-hmm. So do relationships come easy to you, or is it difficult? Is it, are you in the process of um, trying to um, develop that part of you, or is it something that has been pretty strong all along? I think it's been a challenge. I'm actually a pretty introverted guy. Okay. So, uh, you know, re- reaching out to new people and trying to become friends is, is not always natural, mm-hmm. but it's always worthwhile. Yeah. I think I think that's been my journey is realizing that just because something isn't easy doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. Yeah. So for me it's very easy to just cluster myself in my room and watch TV all day and not make new friends. Yeah. Um but just because it's easy doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. It's probably yeah. the same thing with friends. Yeah. Um hmm. and um do you have routines that kind of um help with that um so that it's just not good intentions as far as like um like are you are you intentional in some way when it comes to um relationships meeting new people i know for one thing you did join um the st louis league of empowering gentlemen so you're you're there's some intention there for sure um anything else or do you just try to schedule things on your calendar and yeah if if it's just me then easiest thing to do is just have hobbies that's what i find hmm. yeah um so for example i like to exercise mm-hmm. so i'm just gonna go to the gym and there's gonna be people who also like to exercise at the gym and it's gonna be very easy to strike a conversation and say hello and if you go regularly you're gonna see people who go regularly mm-hmm. and the more you talk to them the more you get to to know them better and it's very natural friendship process it's yeah. nice and I, I feel like most friendships are made that way yeah. Um, and it can be like that with anything, with faith, with exercise, with biking. 
Yeah. But uh, just finding hobbies. And, and I think it's even with romantic interests, it's the same. You're, I mean, I think like with my girlfriend and I, we, we like to do a lot of the same things. So it becomes much easier. We both like walks yeah. in the park. Yeah. And we both like binge watching Netflix on Sunday. Oh, do you? So, <laughs> so, so as a result, there's, there's just going to be this, this natural tendency to want to do the same things. Yeah. And so, and that's kind of how we met. We met at the park. Okay. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can see how that would be helpful. Like, um, me and my wife used to enjoy, um, some of the same things we did take walks and so forth, but she's not into those things we used to do anymore. So it might be a good idea to, for me to, you know, search out what would be, what is something we could do together that we both enjoy, you know? So I can see how, how that'd be like a, just a practical, helpful thing, you know? Yeah. I, I'm sure like with any relationship too, um, we, we always catch ourselves like falling in one way and having to pick ourselves back up. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even my current one, you know, I'll, I'll be a little bit slack in one aspect of relationship and then I'll realize it quickly because any time that you fall off and your behavior or what you're doing, you can, you can see it manifest in some way later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just pick yourself back up and you realize it and you try to better yourself. But, uh, it's, it's very much the same for me now. It's, you know, may, maybe my inclination is not to do too many adventurous things. So um, I might catch myself doing too much Netflix binge watching over mm-hmm. a couple months. And then I realize, wait a minute, you know, she she really wants to go explore a vineyard sometime. And she would actually like that. But here mm-hmm. I am just on season three of <laughs> whatever's, whatever's out there. Right. Um, what kind of exercise do you do? Anything but swimming. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I just had a, had my fill of it. I think I told you physically I destroyed myself. Yeah. Uh, competing at that level takes a toll on you. Yeah. So my shoulders are pretty much permanently shot. Um, so I just do jogs in the park. Okay. Um, you know, um, concerning the Christian faith, like the very center of it, um, from my, the way it seems to me, is Jesus on the cross and his death. And, um, you know, so there's the him willingly allowing himself to be murdered and then uh, and, and trusting himself into the hands of God. And then, um, you know, a few days later, God brings him to new resurrected life. So um, what... Um, in, in what way is that meaningful to you? Or like, what does it mean, you know, uh, what does that aspect of Christianity mean to you? Yeah, well, first I would agree that that's the ultimate symbol of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And what I take it from it is just the value of sacrifice. And it's not completely unlike the Buddhist faith. I mean, B- Buddha teaches sacrifices in different ways. He didn't sacrifice his life to the same extent, but he, he might teach sacrifice more through restraint, power mm-hmm. restraint. Um, but in terms of Jesus and the cross, sacrificing your life for the betterment of the world is considered the ultimate sacrifice, but it kind of teaches you the idea of sacrificing something now 
for something greater later. So mm-hmm. by, by committing an act of sacrifice now, and we, we do it in all sorts of ways, whether it's decluttering or um, competitive swimming, working mm-hmm. harder in your day-to-day routine, or holding your wife's hand every day um, when you don't usually like to hold people's hands every day, mm-hmm. you're committing some sort of sacrifice now for a payoff later. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a sense, you're resurrecting yourself. And uh, if I'm going to tie it back into Dostoevsky, there, there's a sort of resurrection of the character. I mean, the idea is he commits a murder, and someone who mm. commits a murder is unsavable. They can't, mm-hmm. they can't find any form of redemption. Hmm. But he pays the ultimate penance. He confesses the murder, releases it, mm-hmm. owns up to it, goes to prison for it, mm-hmm. uh, recognizes that everything that he thought he stood for was wrong, mm-hmm. and finds some sort of resurrection at the end of the book. Hmm. Yeah. So, so he has. So it's a metaphorical resurrection. Right. But I mean, it's a. It's really what we evolved with as a society, Western civilization. Mm-hmm. We evolved with this, with the idea that sacrificing now leads to greater things later. So, mm-hmm. so in that sense, you know, we we do have a very Christian society. Mm-hmm. Right. Sounds a lot like uh, Jordan Peterson. Listening to him, he talks along the same lines as that. You know, as far as sacrifice and that being like a fundamental thing way back that was a miles you know a milestone as far as the advancement of culture and so forth or, or, or humans mm-hmm. yeah it's it, it is interesting and like i said jesus was one of the first minimalists in my opinion mm-hmm. um just i mean obvi- obviously he did not leave a life of consumption right yeah and right. i mean his basic principles were if you're rich give what you have to the poor mm-hmm. and one could argue that he knew to some extent that if you had a lot, your excess wasn't going to give you any more joy. Mm-hmm. So give it to somebody who could use it mm-hmm. and would actually find joy in it. Yeah. Um, from what I hear, like in our, our culture, there's a certain a benefit for your income rising um, up to a certain point, like around, I don't know, 50000 or so for your household and then, um, and it does kind of take some stress off and so forth. Mm-hmm. But then after that, it's not adding anything to your life as far as satisfaction and, and go, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, I've heard that too, that yeah. there's, there's actually very specific metrics. Mm-hmm. And once you get to that salary range, anything more is not going to add to your base level of happiness. And I guess if we go to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. once, once the bottom level is filled... Mm-hmm. And your salary is filling that bottom level, yeah. Then, you know, getting to that top level is not going to get you that much more, right? Right. It's going to be different things than than that. Yeah, yeah. Getting getting that nice leather jacket, it's not going right. to elevate you permanently that much higher than if you just paid off your mortgage. Yeah. You know, and but um, back to um, like Jesus's death. So in. So I think like your your way of describing it is like a, a legitimate Christian biblical way of seeing Jesus as an example to follow. And um 
and and, and th- thinking about our own lives, like let's entrust him into the hands of the Father, and let's just f- follow Jesus and acts of love, and uh, and because God is true, everything's going to work out okay in the end. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's and kind of like you said, I, I really feel like that's what Jesus wanted. Was he he didn't really necessarily want everybody to just worship him outright. Um, I think it's okay to worship the ideal that Jesus set, but I think he really laid out the example for people to follow. And I mean, if we go back to the concept of salvation, uh, to me, that's what salvation is. It's like he laid this groundwork for this whole world to follow. Mm -hmm. And whether conscious or unconscious, Western civilization kind of evolved with it. We had dark periods and light periods throughout history, throughout the last 2000 years. Mm-hmm. But we kind of evolved with those ideals. Um, so I see that, you know, like as a legitimate thing that probably in my own faith tradition w- wasn't emphasized as much as it should be. But my um, growing up and everything was more in like a evangelical circles. Mm-hmm. So what was emphasized as far as Jesus' death that way was more of like the Passover lamb. Like, you know, when um, Israel was, you know, when they were enslaved in Egypt and they were coming out and there was the Passover lamb and, you know, and that saved them from the death angel. And it was like, um, and then in the gospel, according to John, you know, there's references made to Jesus as being the lamb of, John the Baptist as the lamb of God who takes away the sin for the world and so forth, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's that atonement aspect too as in we are broken and guilty and we can't just clear ourselves um, by being good. You know, we can't, um, and we need someone, you know, we need God to um, clear us and not in just saying, okay, you go free, but more in like paying a, a price that um, satisfies give satisfaction so that we have we're justified in being forgiven or something along those lines yeah yeah so um is that um what are your thoughts about that is that a part of like uh the christian thinking you're familiar with and is it meaningful to you or um or how do you see it yeah that's something that i've grappled with for a long time too okay it's trying to come to terms with um that and faith is such a um, a, a vague concept because it can mean something different for each person. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so one person might think of faith as being a textualist where reading every line verbatim and interpreting exactly how it's written. Mm-hmm. Another person might think of faith as something more metaphorical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when it, when it comes to, yeah, the idea of guilt and needing someone to redeem you, mm-hmm. um, that's, 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 a challenge because I think there's a lot of ways to interpret it. I, I really try to focus on uh, the concept of sacrifice once again, mm-hmm. um, especially with fasting. Fasting in itself is a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's a metaphorical sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus went, um, you know, for 40 days and 40 nights and, and suffered quite a bit and um, went through some temptations. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of perform 40 days of some sort of sacrifice, you know, 
to, to remind ourselves of the value of it. Um, right. So, so I, I would look at it from a metaphorical sense, just thinking, once again, sacrifice is going to lead to something better. It doesn't have to be an extreme, I'm not going to eat for 40 days, but the idea that if you can give something up now for something better to happen in the world later, it, mm-hmm. it, can, it can create uh, better men in the world. So that's the, that's the direction that kind of resonates with you more. Yeah, yeah, more, more than the fire and brimstone okay. kind of stuff. So as far as the guilt and atonement, that, does, like, uh, does that kind of grate against you? Or how do you feel about it? Does it just not, um, like, what are, what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, it's, it's um, a subject that I wouldn't consider myself an expert on, but I would have to say that guilt and atonement are, are natural to human nature. That, I mean, we were born in sin and we'll die in sin. We're never going to cleanse ourselves completely. Right. So there's going to be this habitual recognizing there's something wrong, trying to atone yourself, trying to make yourself better. Mm-hmm. There's going to be this rinse and repeat process that just happens throughout life. Right. And it's just something we accept. Personally, I think it's probably better to not get too guilty, mm-hmm. not feel too guilty. There are certain things and there are certain acts that one would commit that I would, I would imagine guilt would be justified for. Mm-hmm. So maybe we just have to take it upon ourselves to, to judge ourselves, and but be realistic about how we're judging ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I, I see what you mean about um, like being too introspective and uh, uh, you know and maybe even like false guilt or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a guilty guy by nature, so mm-hmm. I feel guilty just looking at some of the jackets I bought over the ten last ten years. Yeah. But uh, is it a worthwhile emotion? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe just because maybe that guilt's a reminder not to do that again. So, yeah. so maybe there's some value in guilt in that sense. Yeah. So I don't, um, so when I was 18, like I had this spiritual experience, um, like I, I got pretty bad throughout my teenage years and I was rebellious to my parents. I, um, was just a hateful, angry kid. Um, and then I, when I was 18, um, I, um, I was just depressed and sad over what I had become. And um, earlier in my life, I tried to, um, you know, when I was just a young kid, do something, because I heard, you know, even, it was in evangelical circles, heard about sermons about hell and so forth, and need, the need to be saved and so forth. So I was trying to do whatever I needed to do to be okay, um, so I didn't end up in hell or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it was all just a frustrating thing. And... Um, and then I went on with life. But then when I, so when I was 18 and I was at this place, it wasn't so much like thinking about um, hell and all that. It was just thinking about, I am morally disgusting, you know. And I asked God to uh, save me. And what I, but it was more like save me from what, I, what I've become, you know. And it was, I remember, it was just like, I think I told you this when we were having coffee, didn't I? A little bit, but maybe okay. not this much detail. So, okay. yeah, feel free to keep going because this is really interesting. It was like a load of guilt lifted from me, and I just felt as light as a feather. And um, so th- 
so now um, I don't I don't feel uh, like I st- struggle with unhealthy guilt or something like that. But I don't feel like I could stand before God on my own merits either. Mm-hmm. Um, that thought doesn't even occur to me. Um, I think of more of like Jesus and his death as kind of like, that's my standing. It's like if I was before God, it's like, is that good enough? Because if it's not, I don't have nothing else, you know. Right. Um, but I just have like some kind of a confidence like, hey, if I think it's a part of the biblical message. So I, I think that if this is true, the Christian faith, then hey, I'm good. Jesus died for me. What else, what more could I ask for? I mean, that's mm-hmm. quite a bit, you know. Yeah, it's um, it's challenging. and I mean, yeah. the New and Old Testament have different tones. So yeah. I'm always kind of grappling between the two, yeah. grappling between what to take and what not to, yeah. and very similar. I mean, I've, I've definitely done some things that I'm not proud of, and I think to myself, oh, how do I explain that one? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So I, I don't know how one releases all of the guilt, or even if one can, yeah. or even if one should. But, uh, you know, maybe possessing it to an extent yeah. keeps you striving for that next level or yeah. that next something better. So, yeah. so it, it, it's a reminder of, of a danger that you can fall in. It's a reminder of what you're capable of. Yeah. And for me, it's kind of like, well, it's been dealt with. Um, not so it kind of it's a little bit f- a freeing thought if I think about it just it's been dealt with I can go on with life I've been it's been dealt with for a purpose so that I can live in relation with God without the guilt because it's not that you know I've become perfect but it's like there's been this gift giving that's brought given that's brought me in and um, mm-hmm. anyway um, so it's kind of like I see those two views of the cross, you know, kind of like that evangelical emphasis that I grew up with and right. that has come to be a pretty foundational thing for me. And then the view that you described, the sacrifice to emulate, I can mm-hmm. see that that, you know, that's just clear biblical teaching as well and something that wasn't emphasized so much in my circles. But um, mm-hmm. it's a good thing to... Um, it's, it's all a part of it, you know. It's in faith is like trusting, entrusting oneself into God's hands, and you know. So it's yeah, yeah, and I, I think there there are some certain points to be made about the evangelical stance that are really powerful too, because mm-hmm. uh, the concept of hell, mm-hmm. it is very possible for someone to fall into their own personal hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Uh, and like Jordan Peterson says, it can always get worse too. <laughs> it can, it can always get worse. Yep. It, yeah. and you can think to yourself, well, it can't possibly get any worse, and, and suddenly it does. Yeah. And uh, and it's so much. Sometimes it's so much harder to be honest and to be good than it is to just create that little white lie. And yeah. Um, yeah, and um, as far as kind of thinking, well, what's going to take you down? I wonder if that is could you know if the sometimes that seems kind of subtle like I you know I'm I'm hoping you know where it's like well I'm this road that I'm going down it, I don't see any alternative but it you know it looks like it's not 
in, might not end in a good place too. I guess I'm kind of think what's in mind is I'm thinking of uh, relationship. Um, mm. For example, allowing a little bit of bitterness and allowing that to um, rather than love. And like the bitterness, it makes more sense from a rational standpoint. Um, but then the love can be kind of irrational. It's like, um, you know, it's almost like just doing it anyway, forgetting the past, you know? Yeah, and, yeah, it is. It's it's challenging, and um, especially with relationships, right? Because they never end, yeah. and feelings do end. They come and go, mm-hmm. and love is a really complicated one because mm-hmm. I would love to be in a permanent state of love. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but I'd be asking too much myself to, to be in one, so... We're going to fall in and out of it. You know, we're only human. We're going to react to things positively, negatively. I mean, I get bitter myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I calmed down and I realized I was unnecessarily bitter mm-hmm. and and try to try to be better the next time. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all a challenge. But maybe at the end of the day, what Jesus really wants or wanted and still wants is that we we constantly are looking at ourselves, evaluating ourselves, catching ourselves when we when we fall, and then if if there is like this judgment day that you're kind of standing there and you can kind of show and you can say, well, you know, you did your best, and uh, wasn't always right, wasn't always wrong, but you were you were always striving, maybe not always, but there was this will to strive. (laughs) Well, is there um, just anything else that you'd like to bring up? Any other topic to discuss before we just kind of wrap up? I'm kind of curious. Do you consider yourself a minimalist? You know, I, um, I was just thinking this morning, um, like in my um, closet, I only have, you know, as far as these button-down shirts, mm-hmm. about eight. I think you said you had like eight shirts, but you were counting T-shirts and everything too. I have a drawer full of T-shirts. Um, so I was thinking, hey, that's not too far from, you know, a mat. Uh, just have, but um, even of those types of shirts, I only wear two or three of them most of the time. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, so I have a tendency, I'm kind of frugal. And I also like order in my life. Um, I like... Um, Good qualities to have. <laughs> not that um, I don't live in a mess some of the time, because sometimes my work area does get like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do strive for um, uh, being kind of lean uh, when it comes to material things, and also my time. I give thought to like schedule and time and, and try to... Th- evaluating things a lot and trying to think, you know, what's the best way to get through this next week or through life in general? Right. What routines can I have that would be helpful for that? Because I'm not good at goals, um, but I can establish a routine that kind of move me in the direction I think I should go, you know? That's interesting. I also hate goals, actually. Hmm. A lot of people tell preach that goals are really relevant and important. Right. I've I've just found that they're toxic to my mentality. Oh, really? So, like hmm. I just find it so much more freeing to not have any. Okay. So, so I mean, like you, I I just find I'll just try to make a routine and 
try to do some things. Yeah. To me, that's just so much healthier than setting this goal that I have to hit, lose 10 pounds or yeah. run 20 miles. Well, for me, goals are exciting when I make the goal, but then after a while, it's like I just lose interest in it. Mm-hmm. And then um, if I'm in that goal mentality, then I will, I'll rethink everything. I'll scrap it, and I'll think, well, what? And I'll make new goals. But I, yeah. And I just never get to the end. I'm always at the beginning because that's the exciting part. So that's mm-hmm. my problem with goals. Oh, um, yeah. yeah same, same here. It's, I say I hate goals. I always set those New Year's resolutions at the beginning yeah. of the year, and then right. I forget about them by February. Right. <laughs> but at the beginning of the year, I'm thinking, all right, new year, new me. Right, yeah. So, yeah, just routines. Um, if, I think, if I can establish a routine, I think, well, if I am cons- consistent on this, it's going to move me in that direction, and that's the direction I want to go in. Mm-hmm. So that's more of my method of doing things. Yeah, that, I like that method personally. It's, yeah. um, I mean, if you're going to tie it into bettering yourself and sacrifice, then yeah. you don't need to set a specific goal to better yourself. Yeah. You, know, you can just try to make an effort to do one thing in one day. Yeah. But to me, that's not a goal. Right. Um, yeah, there's something about the moving forward that I've heard other people talk about. You know, Jordan Peterson talks about it some, that um, there's something satisfying about making progress in some way. So he talks about focus. You know, we get through, we go through life by focusing and moving toward what we're focusing on. Yeah. So the whole standard goal type of mentality doesn't work for me so well with that. Yeah, no, it it doesn't for me either. That's why it's funny you say that. I mean, that's that's the one thing where that kind of turns me off is the whole, like, set this specific goal. Right. I just find it stressful. Yeah. But it does seem like we need to be somehow structuring our day or, you know, so that we're... um, Anyway, making progress in some way, you know, even right. just little things. Um, and I'm yeah. trying to be more kind of mindful throughout my day and just thinking about, like, how am I feeling right now? And if I do that, even a little bit, it's a much better day than if I'm constantly trying to get somewhere where I'm not at the present time, you know. So Definitely. Yeah, just your daily meditation, your daily prayer, your... For me, it's a, a daily journal writing in the morning. Yeah, um, those those are the things for me that feel like they lead towards some progress. But mm-hmm. even in the journal, I don't write. Oh, I have to finish this chapter, or right, I I, I have to throw away this jacket in my wardrobe. It's, yeah, it's more of like a here's my thoughts, here's how I'm feeling. Maybe maybe I'll write, maybe I'll read, but maybe not. Yeah. I like giving myself the option. Yeah. So is your journaling structured at all, or is it just kind of random thoughts that you're throwing down? I tried the structured writing, mm-hmm. but once again, I, I just find that I don't like that much structure. Yeah. So it's usually just random. It's whatever weird dream I had, or maybe if it maybe if there is something that needs to be done, it'll be a little note. Mm-hmm. Like, a, don't forget that you want to finish you know, this book today. Yeah. But, uh, so it's a little bit like for, as a planner, a little bit too. Huh? Yeah. It's like, it's kind of a mix. Yeah. But, uh, it's really just whatever comes to my mind. And, yeah. uh, for me, for me, that's better. And it's never like a, you have to run six miles. Yeah. It's, it's usually, 
maybe I'll go running. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you go back and read your old journal entries? I haven't yet, but I'm sure it would be a trip. Yeah. So I haven't either. I mean, I've been journaling for years. Now, a lot of times my journal looks like a to-do list instead of a journal, <laughs> or it used to. Yeah. Maybe not quite so much anymore, but... Um, yeah, I never do go back and look at it. it just, the whole value for me is just writing it down, and um, it's just I've tried to flip back and look at it, and it just doesn't interest me too much. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. I guess if you really want to get crazy with it and just go total free thought mm-hmm. and make it as creative as you can, then when you look back, you could probably find some pretty fun things. And yeah. Lo and behold, who would have known you're actually this horror fiction writer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh yeah that that could see some use in something like that but I, I never have before yeah well matt it's been really good to talk with you and thanks for taking the time appreciate yeah, it yeah thank you for taking the time if you use a podcast app like itunes please give a review of conversations about life mm-hmm.